For episode two of the Untitled podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with the curator Margot Norton. If you're familiar with Margot's work at the New Museum in New York, it's easy to understand why she's often named one of Curating's rising stars. What you might not know is that Margot's intelligence, warmth, and sense of humor makes any conversation with her a real blast. Since 2011, Margot has helped to shape the unapologetic, cutting-edge programming that the museum is known for today. In addition to being consistently committed to supporting emerging artists, she has also curated shows with superstars like the British artist Sarah Lucas, whose mid-career survey is now on view at the New Museum until January 2018. Margot has also been tapped together with the LA-based curator Jamila James for the 2021 edition of the institution's upcoming triennial. Margot and I sat down in the Sky Room of the New Museum to discuss her work, growing up in New York City, and the importance of getting a good art education early on in life. how you got involved in, in uh, well, I mean, what made you want to be a curator? Well, it's a very long story. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where to start, but I would say that it was after undergrad when I was an art history major, which was something I kind of figured out while I was in school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know what being a curator entailed necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people do. And why did you decide to study art history, actually? Well, I took a course for requirement and ended up reading the textbook for the course in a week. Oh, cool. <laughs> so you liked it. I liked it, yeah. It was a, it was like an American art course and mm-hmm. the professor was really amazing. And I did grow up here in New York and, and grew up going to museums. Mm-hmm. So it was something that I really always loved. And I, I did an, actually an internship when I was in high school at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, in the education department, and so that also was, I mean, it was always something that I, that I enjoyed. It was um, like always in like the back of your mind, and yeah, something yeah. that was interesting for you, but you didn't really know exactly what direction it would lead later No, on. yeah, I didn't know what direction it would lead later on, and it wasn't, I mean, when I was young, I really didn't know anybody in the field, so mm-hmm. it wasn't until I, I was in school and I was studying art history that I was thinking about, you know, you know how I, I would get into the field, I ended up like after graduating, um, working at an auction house, and I and doing a few things on the side. As everyone does. When As everyone does when they're studying just, art history. Yeah, exactly. They want to do. Yeah, exactly. When I was growing up, actually, I always really admired Exit Art, which is was an, an, a nonprofit gallery that um, was founded in 1982 by Jeanette Ingberman and Papo Colo. Um, she's a curator and he's an artist and they worked very collaboratively um, on exhibitions and had this really generous program or policy for creating shows where they would invite artists to submit proposals for exhibitions and then select the artists from that process. And I went there with my poetry class when I was 
like that's cool like in middle school <laughs> or something like that and I it was it was always there you know it was always really interesting so they took you to an art gallery actually yeah the so poetry teacher like the teacher was really cool yeah he was that's he awesome. was yeah yeah I don't think he really t told anyone where we were going mm -hmm. he just took us downtown and we explored. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I remember going to Exit Art from that like original trip that I took. I was probably like 12 or 13 and then would, would go there in high school. And I applied for an internship program there. So I was working there kind of concurrently with the other jobs as an intern. Uh, that was, it was really fascinating. And uh, I was working in the curatorial department um, with Jeanette Ingerman and Jody Hanel. And really through that process that I got to know what curating exhibition was like. Mm -hmm. and, and then, so you studied art history, mm -hmm. and which university was that at? University of Vermont. Okay, mm -hmm. wow. So actually kind of far away from New York. Then you tried some different things, and then you were like, I want to do this curating thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, so when I was an intern at Exit Art, Jeanette actually encouraged me to apply to various programs. It was, what was it, 2005, when curatorial programs were really just starting. Yeah, it was really in its infancy then. It was yeah. starting to catch on. And at, there weren't really that many programs to choose from. I knew that Columbia had a program, um, which is now like the MODA. It's like a modern art critical and curatorial studies program. Mm -hmm. And BARD had its program, both of which were probably, you know, I would say under five years old at that time. But it was not the explosion of curatorial programs that there is now. But yeah, I ended, I also like applied for a PhD program. I wasn't quite sure exactly what I was doing then, but mm -hmm. I ended up staying in New York and going to Columbia's program. And it was actually through another intern at Exit Art that I um, started working as a gallery assistant for Taxman Spangerman Gallery around that same time mm. in Chelsea. So I was working at Taxman Spangerman kind of concurrently with my studies at Columbia. From my own experience, and also a lot of people I know who are also in the art world, or let's say like the museum world, um, so often you have these students like popping out of their bachelor's or master's or sometimes even PhDs, and then they actually have no idea what like all the practical work that uh, putting on an exhibition or running a museum entails. Of course, they've studied it and they've like been taught this is how you, I don't know, manage the budget or this is the timeline or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think that to be able to graduate and already have significant um, professional experience in galleries like where you were working, that's actually a big advantage. Yeah, definitely. I think a good arrangement in a way to have that practical work kind of alongside mm -hmm. the learning from the professors at Columbia, you know, a bit more theoretical place. I mean, and, and, and that was what was so amazing about it, I think, too, because you get to, you know, take those classes and do, you know, so much reading mm -hmm. and thinking and writing. Yeah concurrently with. Well, because in the end, the um, intellectual component is obviously a huge part of the job. You have to write texts, you have to do critical analysis and things like that, and but you can be the best um, organizer of the exhibition in terms of logistics, but if you can't write a critical text, well then, actually, you're screwed. <laughs> to put it bluntly. <laughs> yeah, no, no I mean, it, it was also, I mean, it was a nice balance because, you know, I was also, like, working out, you know, things like shipping and archiving yeah. that were probably, like, less thinking, you know, base and a little bit more, you know, menial work at the gallery that just kind of had to be done. I think it's also so important to, to have experience doing things like this. Of like, course, yeah. Like to yeah. be that person who's there two hours after everyone else is gone and you're putting, like, the name tags next to the works or something like that, you know, just to 
have to go through that, then you know like all the different um, components of what's actually bringing a show together. Definitely. And then you, later yeah, on yeah. you appreciate the work of the other people who are around you performing those tasks or doing tasks that, um, that you regulate to them because you're overwhelmed with other stuff. It, it has been quite interesting too, like having that experience working at a for-profit gallery, having the experience even working at the auction house or at Exit mm -hmm. Art or these like non-profit spaces. And then also working at a museum, you know, it's nice to also know what it's like to work in those various positions because you do mm -hmm. end up working with those people so much mm -hmm. and kind of know what's on the other on the other end. And I did create a show for my thesis when I was at Columbia, um, which was not necessarily a requirement there. It was actually, at the, the year that I was there, quite difficult to find somebody, a professor, to grade an exhibition. Just really? Because <laughs> it was uh, unusual. unusual. And uh -huh. a lot of professors didn't have the experience curating shows, so they mm -hmm. didn't know, yeah, they, they didn't feel co quite comfortable doing it. But we ended up finding somebody who's who was great. But it definitely wasn't the kind of mentorship in terms of curating. It, it, we really kind of did everything on our own. But that was interesting because I also, having that experience working in a gallery did help me with that. I mean, the, the show that we ended up doing was not was also at a place called Third Ward. It was mostly artist studios and woodshop and you know other kind of studios for making art, and they had a gallery space. And when we did the show, there was nothing in place. Like there was no lights or pedestals. So you had to build everything or, from the ground up. We had to build everything from the ground yeah. up. And we ended up working in the woodshop. And I remember like taking cool. <laughs> big um, like sheets of MDF that we got from a lumberyard <laughs> nearby and placing it on the roof of my car and oh driving God. really slowly around <laughs> East Williamsburg to the space to then make the pedestal. So it really was like very, cool. very practical things coupled with, you know, the more mm -hmm. theoretical work that I was doing in school. Mm -hmm. So then after you graduated, then you began to work at the Whitney Museum. Well, there was a year in between. Yeah, there, after I graduated, I was, uh, I stayed uh, working at the gallery in Chelsea at Taxman's Bingerman for a year. And then I started working at the Whitney a year after that. Yeah. So I had a really unique experience at the Whitney because I was, during the, you know, three and a half years or so that I was there, I worked for, you know, four, like, well, I, I worked with four different curators. So I got a sense of a lot of different styles of working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow, what an experience. Yeah. Because normally you, like, um, you're in one department and then you kind of have to wait there for a few years before. Uh, well, at least that's how it's working in Germany. Yeah, so I originally, when I was starting working in the Prince Department, uh, I was just, you know, working on some exhibitions that David was working on and also, you know, the collection and um, acquisition meetings. And then when the 2010 Whitney Biennial curators were announced, um, they were, you know, looking for a curatorial assistant. And so... Mm -hmm. a that's where you stepped in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where I stepped in. And then a short time later, then you were at the new museum. Actually. Well, yeah. So, so then another jump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then another jump. Yeah. So I was worked in the Whitney Biennial. Then I worked in the drawing department for a year, and then I came here. And how long have you been working here now? Uh, it'll be seven years in September. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's great. Yeah. And um, you've done already so many exhibitions here. Well, like for example, um, Laura Provost, she just, she was just announced as um, representing France at the Biennial next year, which is amazing. Yeah, I'm and, so excited. And you were uh, one of the first to work on um, these uh, solo exhibitions with her here. Yeah, we yeah. did a show together in the lobby gallery in, was that 2013 or 14, I think? It was, yeah, we were 
working on the exhibition, and then she was nominated for the Turner Prize while we were working on the show, which Amazing. she was definitely also the person that, that you know, was a surprise on that list. So it was, uh, yeah, it, she, she's amazing, and uh, it was such a joy to work with her on that, on that exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then um, I also read that you did a show with Chris Ophelia, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so, and how was that after, because um, I remember the last time in New York, obviously, when um, Giuliani, Giuliani was, there was yeah, a yeah. outcry, and it was a big deal. Yeah. And how was it doing the second time around? Well, it was interesting because Chris really hadn't shown much in New York since that episode with the sensation show. Do you show. think it was because of that episode? It certainly had something to do with it. Um, I think it was such a huge deal. It was, yeah, it was like major news. Um, mm -hmm. And there were all these protests happening outside the Brooklyn Museum for months. Yeah. And it certainly did have an effect on Chris, I think. He did have a few shows... Uh, with his gallery, with David Zorner. I remember one show in particular right after he started doing the blue painting, a good while after that show. I must have just been starting high school or something like that, and um, reading about it in the newspaper. And actually for me it was a very fun experience because I went to a really conservative Catholic school, like super, super, super conservative. Uh, like you have to wear skirts conservative because, you know, it's what a woman is supposed to do. Right. <laughs> so wow. this huge outcry about um, all of this stuff happening in New York and then I was living in Phoenix at the time. I remember the, the reaction from um, my teachers who, of course, spoke about it at some point and um, the other students who had heard about it. My first thought was like, okay, well, obviously it's a little bit strange that he's making uh, pictures from uh, elephant dung. But it's also kind of cool that actually these artworks, which are contemporary artworks, are somehow reaching these people who normally have absolutely nothing to do with contemporary art. And um, I remember thinking even then, like, wow, that's really interesting that actually it can have such a big effect on people. This is what art is capable of doing, and maybe it's actually not bad art if it has an effect. Do you know what I mean? It's I mean, if it, it pr no, provokes, provokes no, a, a reaction from me, then actually, I don't know, let's say a picture of the Renaissance, Madonna and Child, or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see what art can do. I mean, something that you know, when we spoke about with Chris at the time was how it's just paint mm -hmm. in the end, you know. Yeah. It's just some elephant dung and some paint mm -hmm. and it provokes such a strong reaction, you know, really how it does, it, it certainly does point at that fact of, you know, what, how, how strong images are and how an image can, pro, you know, can provoke such reaction, how icons are formed, you know, how, mm -hmm. you know, just by calling the painting the Virgin Mary too, it's, yeah, it's also something about that because if it was not called that, if it was called, you know, Mm -hmm. Sarah and her daughter, or something like that. It, would, it wouldn't quite, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wouldn't quite provoke provoke the same response. It was. It's actually really interesting too because there's also these like uh, cutouts of pornography that are on it, mm -hmm. and it was something that was like hardly ever mentioned in the '90s. The only yeah, thing that true. that people, you know, were focusing on was it was a portrait of the Virgin Mary with elephant dung, mm -hmm. and you know, just saying that description itself makes it sound like. The elephant dung was like actually exactly like used to make the image, or, or yeah, like that. that's what. And Giuliani did have a quote saying something like that: "The you know elephant splattered on the Virgin Mary," which of course <laughs> it wasn't anything to do with that. There was just some like very delicately placed dung balls like on exactly. the on the. Well, work. actually, elephant dung is is uh, sacred in um, I forget which country it was. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not so familiar with the artwork, but the reason that he used elephant dung was because actually it's. Uh, well, actually, what it was for him was that he was 
traveling around Africa, where his parents are from, but he had never been there. Just kind of saw it perforating the landscape, the like big balls of elephant dung, mm -hmm. and thought it would be really interesting to use this in a painting. Uh -huh. I also think that part of it was also relating to his identity, but kind of the complications of that, because you know he was often referred to as an African artist, even though he's br British artist. You know mm -hmm. he was born. Uh, in the UK, but it was uh, something that, which is interesting, even the reading about the elephant dung being sacred, because it, I mean, while it is, it wasn't something that Chris was thinking about okay, at the time. Okay, so he didn't do it actually, like, consciously? It, I think it, it was a lot more intuitive of a process for him, just kind of seeing the them there, or formal of a process even, and bringing it back with him in his suitcase, mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and how would you say, uh, since you've been working here uh, since um, seven years now, how would you say that your experience of working with artists like Chris and Law, how has it changed your concept of, of curating, actually, like from when you started out to, to where you are now as associate curator? Well, I'm actually full curator. Oh, full curator. Excuse me. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> no, it's okay. Every show that I work on, you know, you gain something from it. It's an experience that you learn from. And each show, presents its own challenges and has, you know, something with it that you, you know, can learn from and when, when thinking about the next shows that you do. I mean, Laura's show was a small show that we put together in the lobby gallery where she actually worked in a studio space that we had next door and she was here for a few weeks and we were working on that exhibition and mm -hmm. that um, was a definitely a different situation than working with Chris on like a full-scale museum show that in Included work that he made, you know, in the early nineties yeah, until today. Yeah, so it's like a mini, mini retrospective or or a survey show. Survey. Yeah, yeah. So a show that included the, you know, work that he's been working on since the beginning of his career up until now, which also hadn't happened in the states. So it was, uh, it was a good opportunity, you know, for our audience here to to see his work. And I think it's just it it definitely adds so much. Also, kind of seeing how he continually like pushes himself and continues to come up with really interesting ways of pushing painting into new directions where, you know, which he, he kind of continuously did since the beginning of his career, but um, seeing it all together is really powerful in that way. Would you say that you prefer in general to work with artists in solo exhibitions, especially like uh, larger shows, which allow you to kind of uh, take a survey of um, his, the whole entire oeuvre, or you prefer um, commission-based projects or things like that? There's something to both of them. I mean, I curated this festival recently in Iceland, which was an amazing That's right. experience. You told me last time yeah, that must and have been really cool. Yeah, and that was a group exhibition, and that was also there was something really amazing and in putting the list of those artists together, but also kind of seeing the ways that those artists kind of picked up on each other's work and also collaborated in some instances mm -hmm. or um, kind of developed ideas for collaborations from that experience of working on the festival too. So actually like the, um, the interactions between the artists were yeah. creating maybe new forms of uh, exhibiting or the actual artworks themselves. Yeah, I'm, and also, you know, through the, yeah, I mean, through juxtaposition and connection, there's of course something that that you find in a group exhibition that I think is really interesting. Um, but also, you know, in a format such as that, which was a time-based festival, um, uh, you know, the artists also got to meet each other. And um, mm -hmm. there were 
instances where projects would go beyond just what we did in the festival and conversations started happening for what might happen in the future, but also happened during the festival itself, just through that kind of organic and kind of cross-disciplinary nature of the way the art scene is in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, Which it must be quite small. Yeah, exactly. Scenario, it is. It's a very small scene. It, you know, made me think of, oh, this is what the 70s in New York must have been like yeah, or something exactly. like that because, you know, everyone was very close and it definitely didn't feel like the way that New York is so hyper-professionalized in terms of, you know, what artists do and, you know, art, an artist can also become known for making one thing in particular there. It's definitely um, you mean they encouraged have like a sort to... Of, um, trademark work which they kind of build on in order to further their career? Or well, mean, or like, yeah, or the... or that that can become the way that kind of feels like an artist should should see themselves. I think that in an environment like that, you know, you you meet people there who you know introduce themselves as you know I'm a biochemist, but I also do performance art and a musician yeah, exactly. in a band, mm-hmm. and I'm running for mayor. And that's a very typical mm-hmm. person. It's not yeah. like something that's, you know. That's true. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely not reflective of, I think, like the world in general. It's yeah. like definitely very like New York focused. You, you meet people who are doing like so many incredible things all at the same time and everyone is so accomplished and everyone is so successful. And especially in the art world where you have so many, I mean, the amount of money going in and out of the city just in terms of like the commercial galleries is uh, incredible. And um, I think the way that it looks from the outside, uh, it can be very intimidating for people who like want to get involved in contemporary art or just want to get to know it a little bit better, like go to a museum or see some shows or walk into a gallery and, I don't know, like ask a price for a picture. A lot of people are even too scared to do something like that because it's just so intimidating. Right, right. uh, And I think you get that also sometimes in the museum world too. Right. Well, I guess this is also a symptom of of these, you know, ways that, you know, we sort of think about what art is in our society and how it's actually some, it, it can be something that can stretch beyond, you know, just the walls of galleries and museums and the mm-hmm. people that work in those institutions. Um, and I, I mean, I, I it, it would... The experience in Iceland was very eye-opening, and you know, you say it was it, it was refreshing, but it was also it um, it did kind of expand uh, you know the possibilities of I think what um, you know what what can happen in in those kind of communities too. I mean, things also did happen very quickly during the time of the festival, where mm-hmm. you know people would come up with ideas for projects that they wanted to do in a way that. I think we're not used to because it's uh, thought of as impossible or that yeah. you would never be able to, you know, put something together in a short amount of time. Yeah, because or museums run on a completely different time schedule than, uh, than uh, like, would say, like the normal or everything else that's, like, outside the museum world. Although I have to say the new museum is quite um, uh, unique in that you don't even plan, like, five years in advance. You have a much shorter time schedule, like what we have at Schinkel Pavilion, for example. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. It's very similar. Yeah. And um, I was speaking with a curator at... Um, Museum in Germany, uh, they plan. They start to plan seven years in advance, actually. Yeah, a lot of obviously makes it really difficult to respond to actually what's going on in the art world. And then, uh, of course, they usually have to stick to artists who already have like a long career or a long reputation behind them. And 
it's it's difficult to like um, uh, uh, give more um, or like have like a quicker reaction to if there's like an interesting artist which is coming up uh, who could definitely uh, profit from having a larger show and you want to give them this opportunity, it's just not possible because yeah. uh, they say, sorry, A, it's either not in our budget or B, it's just not possible <laughs> because of the timeline. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. I think um, being an institution the size that we are and also as a non-collecting institution does allow us this fluidity or agility in terms of you know how... Um, we're showing artists and we also have like multiple timelines because there are exhibitions like Chris O'Feely's for example or the Sarah Lucas show which I'm working on now which is opening this September oh, great. Um, where I have been working on those shows for several years mm -hmm. but the um, but then we do have spaces that you know we're have a much shorter time frame mm -hmm. that are you know more for showing you know commission-based work or new projects that um, that artists are working on. So within the museum, you have like some spaces which are reserved for the larger shows, or like exactly. longer. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Like time slots and, and okay, yeah, exactly. So, um, so we do like plan some shows in advance, while there's others that are remain open to allow for that mm -hmm. fluidity. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting, actually. That, yeah. Um, that you guys leave that opportunity open. To yeah, say, like, definitely. Okay, like, let's see what happens, and it's actually very similar to this model of the Kunsthalle. Mm -hmm. I'm oh, sure definitely. you know it. Yeah, like, yeah. Where every, um, Every city, every town has their like Kunsthalle, and um, they're also non-collecting institutions, even though they're they're um, uh, state financed. But um, I think that uh, just in terms of what this allows them to do, the fact that they don't have to maintain a permanent collection, like um, uh, at the Whitney, for example, um, makes things well. It's just running much more smoothly because you don't have a huge amount of work that you have to do on top of everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, when the new museum was founded in the '70s, it was. Def having a non-collecting institution was something that you know didn't really exist in the states. Yeah, that's true. And when so when Marsha Tucker founded the new museum, um, it actually did have a collection. But the idea that she had with it in the beginning was that it would be a fluid collection, so that it would continuously evolve and change. Oh, I see. So actually, you would like acquire pieces, but then you could also sell pieces. Exactly. For yeah. So yeah. she did had a process of buying works from shows and then mm -hmm. selling them to, you know, acquire new work later. That's very interesting. Um, which, which is really interesting. At a certain point, she ended up stopping it from being an active collection mm -hmm. um, because it was better to, well, she wanted the, you know, the institution to focus its efforts more on working on exhibitions as opposed to the collection. Because it does, it, it, it certainly is a, you know, a big part of working at any institution. Yeah, well, just maintaining um, the archives and keeping all the documents up exactly. to date or keeping the works preserved, which in contemporary art, it's becoming more and more of, um, of a problem if you have all of these, like, installation art and stuff like that, or, um, or media art, which is hard to categorize, you know. Um, First of all, where do you store it all? How do you store it? And how long do you have to store it like that for? Yeah. Like what happens if you have a, a work of art, like, let's say um, a video work, which is stored on um, a sort of equipment, and then in 10 or 15 years, actually the equipment that you use to play the thing that the artwork is stored on is maybe obsolete, like, I don't know, like a floppy disk, for example. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's um, it's true. It's, it, it becomes something that, you know, you have to you know, continuously work around. Mm -hmm. um, and it does allow, you know, a certain freedom um, to just be working with artists on exhibitions here. Yeah. Um, and where do you see yourself going in the next <laughs> five, ten years? <laughs> well... I know it's a, it's a vague question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, de I mean... 
I would love to curate a um, like a big group exhibition is something that I, I haven't, I mean, I've done collaboratively with curators here, but I would definitely love to tackle that. Um, and to, yeah, to continue to work with artists on projects, um, you know, here at the museum and um, kind of see where, where that leads me. Um, Great. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think like one of the things that I love the most about being a curator is to work with artists and to yeah. kind of see their That's true. vision can uh, be shown to the best of its ability. And I do think that, I mean, we were talking earlier about the, you know, do I prefer working on solo exhibitions or do I prefer working on, you know, group exhibitions? I like to f kind of focus the work, the wh whatever it is on the work itself. And mm -hmm. I do think that there's va like valuable, I mean, there, there, there are great reasons for working on group exhibitions and there are great reasons for working on solo exhibitions. Yeah. But to kind of, instead of making it like driven by some, you know, notion that I have as a curator that I think is interesting, I do think that I would, you know, prefer to to focus it on what the artists are doing. There was yeah. a young curator who said to me something recently about, um, you know, how do you even come up with your ideas for exhibitions anymore? Don't you feel like there's been so many ideas mm -hmm. that have already been done? Everything's or, been done, and, there's nothing and, left. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Like, just look at artists, yeah. that's all you need to do, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's true. And I think that actually one of the greatest pleasures in being a curator, and I speak also from my own experience, is the fact that you can make these um, these uh, imaginations and projections of the artist actually real, that, that your role is, is bringing everything to life somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that you have to go, and I have oh. to go too, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank I hope you that so was much. Interesting. Yeah, it was a really, really interesting talk. Okay, good. That's it for this episode of the Untitled Podcast. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review so that other people can find our show. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.